Here's something ridiculous. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Page 855 in your church Bibles. It's up on the screen. Let's just dive right in. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Wouldn't this be ridiculous? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You, you foolish man, literally, literally. You empty-headed person. Uh, to paraphrase, you numbskull from Pastor James. Do you, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless or dead? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that what he did, excuse me, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds dead. It's the word of the Lord. Now long ago, a pastor by the name of John Owens preached on this uh, paragraph, and he summarized it in this sentence, all right? He said this, he said that we are saved by faith alone, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that quote is really what's in the driver's seat as we look at this passage of Scripture in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now, this passage of Scripture did not just appear out of thin air. This passage is in a letter written by James. James the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. After Mary's supernatural birth, uh, Mary and Joseph then had other children, at least six that we know of, and James was one of those children. And he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God until after the resurrection. I mean, all up through the cross, James and the other siblings of Christ mocked uh, Jesus, But it took the resurrection 
to transform James the skeptic, James the scoffer, James the mocker into James the believer. And furthermore, not just James the believer, but James the pastor. James became the the, the pastor, the senior leader, I guess, uh, of the first congregation, the congregation that gathered in Jerusalem. And we can read about that in the book of Acts. And the congregation that met in Jerusalem then became a scattered congregation as they not only had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution, but they had to leave Israel. They had to not only leave their hometown, but their entire country, and they were scattered. And so these these smaller communities of believers gathered in, in synagogues throughout the empire, and they get a letter from their senior pastor, and it's James. And James encourages them, even in their trials. James says, brothers, my brothers, consider it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And undeserved and inescapable trials. And I know that this church gathers here every week. And we have a diversity of trials that happens. And James says, you know, listen, God's not angry with you. He's not mad at you. He wants to grow you so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So trust in God the Father, who gives nothing but good and perfect gifts, and be open to Him and to where He's going to be leading and where He wants to take you and shepherd you so that you can be a fully devoted follower, a man and woman of God, tempered and tried and toughened by life's trials. See? What's going on? God's God's doing a quality assurance test on your faith. And that's what we see in James chapter 1. Well, James chapter 2 continues the quality assurance faith. Because James says in chapter 2, listen, the quality of your your faith is tested by, by how you treat folks who are not as well off as you. And and he wants the those believers who are scattered. And, and who are themselves facing trials to possess a faith that is alive, a faith that is active, a faith that saves, a saving faith. A saving faith is what James is talking about here in James 2, 14 to 26. And James says that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so the question on the table here, as we look at this paragraph, is this. What does saving faith look like? What does saving faith look like? And so we're going to tackle that. And I want to tell you why this matters here, okay? Look up here for just a minute. Here's why this matters. Um, I had the opportunity Monday morning to travel to uh, Texas. And to see, I went to El Paso to see... uh, uh, Greg and Jill Hunt and their family. And you all remember Greg and Jill. Uh, Greg was our former student minister here at uh, Windsor Road. And uh, about four years ago, they left our community to go plant a church in El Paso, Texas. And uh, uh, to left to right, that's Ethan. Uh, then there's Reed, Jill, Greg, and then there's Mara. I've got some other uh, pictures of them. Uh, that, there we go. That's, that's Greg. <laughs> he, he emailed the staff and he said, well, I lost Randy in a nightclub in Mexico. And so, <laughs> that's Greg. 
<laughs> you know, it wasn't Mexico. Anyway, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> joking. But um, Ethan's 11, and uh, Mara just turned 8 last week. And so, uh, and then there's my buddy, he's 4-year-old Reed. He's my new buddy. And uh, I got to play with some of his toys. And uh, yeah, yeah. And next picture, there we go. That's a... <laughs> Try to conv- I tried to tell him, I tried to say, I'm Batman, I'm Batman. And I kept telling that, I'm Batman. He said, no, you're not Batman, you can't be Batman. I said, why not? He said, because Batman doesn't wear glasses. So anyway, wisdom of a four-year-old. But, uh, so then after I left El Paso, I went to, to Killeen, Texas, uh, Fort Hood. And I uh, caught up with Lou and Shirley Best. And Lou and Shirley were members here at Windsor Road in the, uh, in the 90s, and uh, he, was, uh, he had a great uh, career in the military, uh, was the commanding officer at the Army ROTC, and uh, they are, they, uh, about four years ago, about the same time, four or five years ago, they uh, planted a church in Killeen, uh, Texas, uh, Fort Hood, Hill Country Church. And um, here's the deal, uh, just getting to rub shoulders with these men of God to see their faith in action, and their churches... And Greg's size dynamic is about 120 uh, and got to see uh, El Paso and where they're going to be uh, worshiping downtown in a coffee shop atmosphere, uh, uh, reaching, uh, reaching folks for the gospel of Christ. And then going to Killeen, which uh, the, 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 <laughs> the ministry environments and the ministry styles and the personalities uh, are the only thing that's about the same as with Greg and Lou is that both of them are preaching Christ. And, uh, and, uh, and God is blessing uh, both, both uh, churches. Uh, Greg's size dynamic is about 120. Lou's size dynamic is about 50. It's hard, uh, especially in Killeen, because you've got uh, a lot of transiency. Half of uh, Lou's congregation is uh, at war. And so then you have... Here you have in El Paso, you've got the needs in, in Juarez and also in El Paso with the homeless and trying to help them. And then in Killeen, you've got, uh, you've got brokenness all, all the way around with families who've, uh, who are really torn apart because of, uh, of the war. And you've got two men of God in places where both are called of God to, to be Jesus with skin on. And that's how their congregation is going to survive right there by godly leadership, people look up and they say, okay, there's Jesus in action. And it's not just true for pastors, it's true for the entire congregation. And that's what James is trying to say. We know, we know, don't we? It's not what goes on in this room right here that really gives evidence of our faith in Christ, is it? No. It's what goes on out there. What goes on in the office, what goes on at home, what goes on in the classroom, what happens in the neighborhood. That's where the evidence of our faith is. This place is just the celebration of all that goes on outside there. But it's outside there that matters. So the question, what does a saving faith look like, is a very, very important question. And James answers it this way. As we look through these verses, James first of all tells us what saving faith is not. Here's what it's not. And then after making sure that's crystal clear, he moves on and he says, here's what saving faith is. So let's look at what it's not. 
And then let's examine what it is. Now in verses 14 to 17, James says what saving faith isn't. And he does so by means of a very short parable about a Christian who finds someone obviously hungry and obviously without clothing, this well-to-do believer, sees the situation and then responds with, I'll put you on a prayer list. That's what I'll do. See, that's what go in peace can mean. It can mean, you know, may God's peace be upon you. And that phrase, keep warm, that can be a prayer. You can translate that as a prayer. May God keep you warm, you know. And keep well fed, may God feed you. I mean, I mean, this poor person's need is right in front of the wealthier person's face. And it is within the wealthier person's ability and grasp to meet this need. But in prayer, they turn their face away from the need and they... They ask God to take care of the problem. And James responds with, huh? What is that? James responds this, wouldn't this be ridiculous? Now some scholars assert that the prayer was insincere. Only a a prayer like that can be insincere. But other scholars say, oh no, that, that could be very well a sincere prayer. But it doesn't matter, does it? Whether it's sincere or not, still the need isn't met by the very ones who can meet it. You see what James is saying here? See what he's saying? You know, saving faith does not consist of pious sentiment. Saving faith does not consist of sentimental feelings and sentimental prayers. Ah. Now, feelings are important, and feelings are necessary, and feelings are part of who we are as humans. Prayer is important, and prayer is necessary. And prayer is vital. We will see about the importance of prayer in James chapter 5. If any of you are sick, call the elders for prayer. Prayer is important. Prayer is necessary. Feelings are important. Feelings are necessary. But that's not enough. It's not enough. It's like giving a thinking of you card to the hungry. James goes, what? What can you imagine this week? This week, Wednesday, first Wednesday of the month is Windsor Road Wednesday at Salt and Light. From 1 to 5, food distribution. Uh, I'll be there uh, at 1 o'clock from 1 to 2, and uh, it takes five minutes to get trained. All right? Five minutes to get trained. And you can mingle with folks and and love them and, and share resources with them. And can you imagine, though, for, you know, I've talked to Nathan about this. Nathan Montgomery, let's change the program this week. Instead of passing out food, let's pass out thinking of you cards. Right? That's ridiculous. What, what, what good does that do? Nothing. It does nothing. Save your card, James says. Cold cuts are better than warm words. They are. And why? Because poor people cannot eat shalom. That's why. Saving faith cannot consist solely of sentimental, pious prayers. Just, it doesn't work. Furthermore, James says, here's something else saving faith is not. All right? Saving faith does not consist of orthodox teaching. That thought gets picked up in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. In other words, 
look, James, we've just got different spiritual gifts. Everybody has a spiritual gift. Everybody has a different way of expressing worship and devotion of God. We've got options. Take your pick. You've got faith. I have deeds. And James retorts, not so fast. Not so fast. No way. (laughs) No. You believe in one God? Verse 19. Wonderful. Wonderful. Even demons believe that. You believe, you're a monotheist? Wonderful. You have now arrived at the spiritual maturity of demons. Okay? So you can have these things and still be a demon. Can't you? You can have sound doctrine. You can believe God is one. Uh, um, in a sermon over James chapter 2, verse 19, many years ago, a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards made the point that demons have been educated in the best divinity school in the universe, the very throne room of God. They've studied more about God's attributes, his power, his strength. And you know what? I cannot think of one article in our church's statement of faith that demons would disagree with. Really. They know more about sound doctrine than I do. And they creep about because they know who God is and what he can do. James says they shudder. That word means, that word, demons get the chills. Even in hell, demons get the chills. Why? The involuntary shivering. Because they are perfectly orthodox and perfectly lost. So you can believe that God is awesome and powerful, and you can tiptoe around trying to be moral and religious, and all of that can be nothing more than just involuntary quaking. Fire insurance. Sentimental feelings, pious prayers, orthodox teachings. There's nothing wrong with having conscience pangs, and there's nothing wrong with doctrinal correctness. But don't mistake those for a living, saving, active faith. James says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, when we read this verse, verse 24, someone may scratch their head, someone like me, who when I first read that verse, where James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and and it's like, what? But wait a minute. I mean, didn't Paul say in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done? You see the potential confusion here? And Paul not only hinted at that in Titus, but take a look at these two verses together. Paul who wrote, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, chapter 3, 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. But then James 2, 24, we just read, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Whoa! What's going on with that? How do we make sense with that? And some people say, well, see there, the Bible contradicts itself. And so... No, we're, we're done. Well, no, we're not done. So we're not going to close the church. Okay. But it is a fair question. Okay. 
It is a fair question. And uh, so let's talk about it. Well, Paul and James use the same word, justified and faith, and they use it in different ways. They do. I mean, the Apostle Paul in Romans is talking about a faith that is dependent on the perfect and complete work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul is refuting the notion that anyone, before they become a believer, can earn their way to God's favor by their lifestyle of religious works or deeds. Paul's refuting the idea that, you know, church attend, perfect church attendance can get you into heaven. Paul's, Paul's combating that idea. Paul is talking about how a believer becomes a believer. And a believer becomes a believer by leaning on the achievement of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's Paul's point. That's always been his point here. James's point is a whole different point. James's point is not one of faith versus works. Rather, James's point is works versus words. James is all about showing the difference between talking your faith and walking your faith. Are you merely going to declare your faith or are you going to demonstrate your faith? Are you going to talk it or are you going to walk it? That's what James is about. And in fact, that's also what Paul is about. Because speaking of Titus, Paul makes the very point that James makes in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul says, he talks about the enemies of the cross, they profess to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Meaning that the opposite is also true. Our actions affirm and profess our knowledge of God. Our actions either affirm or deny our faith. Our actions either refute our faith or corroborate our faith in Christ. Both Paul and James would agree that a workless faith doesn't work. So, so what does work? Well, James says in James chapter 2 that saving faith, it's, it's not pious sentiment, it's not solely consisting of pious sentiment or doctrinal correctness. Saving faith consists of a faith that is alive in expressing love to God and expressing love to people. And that's the point of these two examples that James uses from Israel's history in verses 20 to 26. James uses two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. Now, why these two? Why Abraham and Rahab, right? Why not Esther and Nehemiah? Why Abraham and Rahab? Well, think about it. Abraham was the father of the Hebrew race. Abraham was the quintessential example of saving faith, a faith which works. And so was Rahab, yet she, you know, Abraham came from the very pinnacle of, of a Hebrew, the, the mountain of Hebrew history, and Rahab, she was at the valley. You see, she was a prostitute. So Abraham, Abraham was a Jew, Rahab was a Gentile, Abraham was a patriarch, Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was godly. Rahab was thoroughly sinful. Abraham was called the friend of God. And Rahab belonged to a people who were considered the Canaanites, the enemies of God. So James's point is, from the greatest to the least, 
you know, from the youngest to the oldest, the highest to the lowest. This principle is true. And let's start with Rahab as she expressed love for people as an example of her faith at work. Now you can read about her story in Joshua chapter 2. So just write down Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2 tells the story of Rahab. And, and it is about seeing human need and doing something about it. In Joshua 2, you will read how Rahab assisted the spies who were scouting out the promised land and the city of Jericho. And, and she realized that God was God. The Hebrew God was the true God. And on that faith, she acted. She helped those in need who were scouting out the promised land. And so the principle for us is when we see human need, if our faith is alive, when we get near poor people, and if our response response to poor people and folks who are different from us is mocking and scoffing, then that just demonstrates we have a dead faith. But if you're around people who are different from you, uh, racially, socioeconomically, and, and, and people who are broken and marginalized, and, and, and that just flips a love switch on, and then you act, well, you see, that's evidence that your faith is alive. And you say with James, has God not chosen the poor to be rich in faith? And you see, when you are around marginalized and broken people, they remind you of yourself, because you were spiritually bankrupt, and that's what led you to lean on Christ. Abraham, rather Rahab, shows us a faith that is alive to people. And Abraham shows us a faith that's alive to God, you see. And his story, his story in the book of Genesis, look at verse 23. I want you to look at that phrase. Abraham was called God's friend. See, God tested Abraham's faith by asking Abraham to offer his one and only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Now, Isaac's life was never in danger because it was a test. It was just a test. God was testing Abraham's faith. It was a quality assurance test. And Abraham trusted God so much. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And he just, he gave, he gave what was most precious to him up to the Lord, trusting that God would make it right however it turned out. You see, Rahab's faith was alive to people. Abraham's faith was alive to God. I love this quote that I found this week about saving faith. Listen to this. Simply believing God exists does not equal saving faith. Saving faith implies trust, and trust must respond in action. That's saving faith. You can believe that a parachute exists, but you have saving faith in a parachute when you jump from the plane and pull the ripcord. You may believe that a surgeon saves lives, but you have saving faith only when you get on the gurney and start counting backwards. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 11. Oh, you should read Hebrews chapter 11 as you read James chapter 2. Because let the Bible interpret the Bible. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter of the Bible. And when you look at all of these heroes of the faith, you see that their faith was alive. Their faith acted. Listen to this. Abel offered. Enoch pleased. Noah built. Abraham looked. Isaac blessed. 
Jacob worshipped. Joseph instructed. Moses chose. The Israelites passed through. Rahab welcomed. And the list goes on. Their faith is described by their actions. We are saved by faith alone. And the faith that saves is never alone. Okay? Now what? Well, (laughs) hey, listen, our faith becomes practical uh, when it shows up. Someone once said that our faith becomes practical when it shows up in two books, our date book and our checkbook. That's when faith gets practical, okay? So, and that's when it gets personal. So let's get personal here for the next few minutes, all right? Uh, Object lesson number one. Michelle Maroon came up here last week and talked about object lesson number one. Let's get practical. Lesson number one, go buy some diapers. You heard it here at church. What does the pastor want me to do today? Go buy some huggies or pampers or whatever, okay? And and for why? For the real life young moms. There's a table back in the back. You can find out more information. But let's, let's show some love by buying some diapers, all right? Object lesson number two. Take your outlines and look to the very back. Page two. On the bottom. You will see a list of items. And... As I told you uh, last week, Pat Duzan uh, was in Haiti. And I uh, made a mistake because I told you all that she landed after the earthquake hit. And actually, she landed before the earthquake hit and was there during the earthquake. But I got the name right. Okay? Now, she went with a group, and we've seen about, we've seen about this group in the, in the newspaper. If you've read the News Gazette, you've heard about the Northwest Haiti Christian Mission. But Pat um, has gone on missions trips uh, through this ministry here for the past several years. And at the, the back of page two of your outline, there's just a list of just medical supplies. And Northwest Haiti Christian Mission has a warehouse in Indianapolis. Uh, that uh, they are receiving supplies, and then from the warehouse, they're going to transport them down to Haiti. And they need whatever's on that list there. Hey, listen, uh, Sarah and I were on a date last night. It was a romantic date. We bought Huggies, and we went to Schnucks, and that's what 48-year-old people do. And, um, and uh, you know, this, these, this is alcohol, just uh, isopropyl alcohol. This was rubbing alcohol, and it's, you know, this was four for a dollar, okay? So, like, when you're going to the grocery store, take that list with you, and, and you can see uh, there's just some things that can be received, and bring them to the church, and you say, where do I put them? I just find the pile. We'll, we'll make a pile, and we'll get it sent off. So, so there's diapers that we can do. Uh, there's uh, Northwest Haiti Christian Mission stuff that we can do. Emily's going to come up in just a little bit to talk about the Dominican Republic because, you know, there's two countries on that island and there's still a tension that needs to be made. Uh, there, there's an, still an incredible amount of poverty in the Dominican and we've got quite a partnership. And, um, 
we're going to be going again this year, this summer. And next Sunday night, uh, we're going to be having a chili cook-off and a dessert bake-off right here in this room. And yeah, we're going, to wa- we're going to both watch the big game and we're going to pray for those in chains. Uh, but we, want, we need you to support uh, the, the uh, chili cook-off that's going to be happening. And you, you can find, the minute you leave these doors, you'll, uh, you'll smell the chili. Yeah, and, uh, and we need you to support that. So there are, there are so many different ways that we can be Jesus with skin on. And here's what we're going to do as well. All right? And we're only going to do this next Sunday. Only next Sunday. Sunday morning. All right? Next Sunday morning, we're going to have an Abraham Lincoln offering. What's that? It's a $5 bill offering. I want you to bring $5, and we're going to have a basket there on the table as you leave, over and above your regular giving, and we're going to see what God does when we give an Abraham Lincoln offering. There was 1,000 people here last week, $5, you do the math, and let's send that for Haiti relief in addition to these medical supplies. So, So, you know what? No one can do everything, but everybody can do something, okay? This bottle costs a quarter, all right? So whatever you can do, you know, make it happen. And, and, and when we do this, church family, let's do this out of a heart of yearning, not a heart of earning. You see, dead faith obeys God for what you can get out of it or what you avoid. But true faith yearns for friendship with God. Yearns. That's why it says Abraham was a friend of God. He just wanted to be with God. Randy, what did you do when you were in El Paso? I was just with Greg. I was just just with Greg. What did you do? I was doing it. You know, we were talking and conversing and catching up. What did you do in Killeen? I was with Lou. We're just hanging, talking, praying, sharing encouraging and that's the deal with the lord you know i just want to i want to be with a friend and so wherever god wants to go that's where i want to be that's where i want to be i live for the friendship and that's that's what we're talking about here we're saved by faith alone and the faith that saves is never alone see here's the deal with demons they do know theology they They respect the greatness and authority and sovereignty of God, but demons will never enjoy the beauty of God, the splendor of God, the loveliness of God. But when you see God for who He is, love in the flesh come to earth, you see that the Father who did not withhold His only Son, but He took His Son up to the altar of the cross and then left Him there, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And we see Jesus, God's only Son, on the altar of the cross. And we realize that He did this not so that we could be subjects, but so that we could be friends, and even more than friends, so that we could be heirs, so that we could belong to the family. And so now when we worship, we worship because we belong to the family. And we see the beauty and majesty and wonder and splendor. And we realize that this world has nothing, nothing, that I want from it. Nothing. And only when you hate the world the way God wants you to hate the world can you love the world the way God wants you to love the world. Because in Christ, now I've become an heir of the kingdom. And the Father's business has now become my business. 
And I want to go wherever God is. Church family, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never 